Every spiritual journey eventually leads through a wilderness. And every soul has a wilderness experience where God feels far away. When you pray and the heavens feel like brass, when a dream dies, when a relationship ends, when a loved one passes away, when you feel lonely and you, you don't want to be alone, when you feel spiritually confused, emotionally spent, and physically flat, uh, you're in the wilderness. And during dry, confusing times, we wonder whether God has abandoned and forgotten us, draining faith and deflating hope. But God is there in the wilderness. And even when we can't find our way out, we can find our way to him. In fact, God sets a table for us in the wilderness and invites us to sit and sup with him to experience the hospitality and generosity and grace of the kingdom of God. We finally see the highway, the way of holiness, our promised land. Now, the people of Israel once wandered in the wilderness and despaired that God had forgotten them. But the truth is, they had forgotten God. In Psalm 78, the psalmist proclaims his intention to reveal hidden things about God's dealing with his people, things from of old, from of old um, praiseworthy deeds that their descendants should know and remember, the miracles of the Exodus and the giving of the law to the people. But as they wandered on the Sinai Peninsula at the threshold of the Promised Land, the people suffered and grumbled and bickered and panicked. In Psalm 78, verse 19, it says, They spoke against God, and they said, Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? All along the way, God did. He set tables for them to meet with him in the tabernacle at, at every encampment, providing sustenance and caring for his people. And God's people walked through wilderness experiences on the way to their promised land, this is always true. And along the way, they encounter tables of God's deliverance and provision and presence if they can see it and receive it. And it's there in the wilderness that God shaped Israel, and it's there in our wilderness that God shapes us. <clears throat> now, our message series, entitled A Table in the Wilderness, is based on stories from the book of Numbers found in, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And throughout our series, we'll place our wilderness experiences in the story of God guiding his chosen people after the exodus through the Sinai wilderness. And in these ancient stories, we'll learn how to navigate our moment and make our way to the table as we deal with our wilderness experiences today. And there are many. We're walking through the wilderness of a pandemic right now and tremendous social upheaval and unrest within our country, and all of this during the most riven election season in our nation's history. Yeah, we're living through a pretty rough time. Now, the Jews spent 40 years in the wilderness, and hopefully our time in the wilderness will prove shorter than that. But however long we're there, we need to learn how to find God there and allow him to refresh our souls and shape our lives into the people he desires. And this has everything to do with memory, with remembering. To make our way through, we need to remember and rehearse God's rescues. 
And in Numbers chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, we will come to the first table in the wilderness, which celebrates God's rescue from bondage in Egypt, a memory the Jews needed to recover. Let me ask you, are you a person of memory? I don't mean that you feel sentimental and look back through that lens. When we're feeling sentimental, our memory is selective. We tend to focus on what's pleasurable or meaningful and ignore the rest. Or we may be very unsentimental, recalling the shame and pain uh, and neglecting to remember the kindnesses shown to us and the help extended. Memory includes all of it, and memories make us who we are. And they create our worldview in ways we hardly realize. Like a character made of Legos, we're built of blocks of memory that fit together to form our consciousness. And our reactions to situations in our lives are conditioned by the memories that they trigger. And so memory is more than recalling what you had for breakfast or a password for the program you're using. Like fish that don't notice the water where they swim and breathe, our lives are saturated with memories that unconsciously form and sustain us. Now, God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt created a lot of memories, and some of them were very traumatic, actually. <clears throat> Egypt had been their home for 400 years, and they knew nothing else. When Moses came on the scene as God's agent for 10 plagues designed to loosen Pharaoh's grip, it created unimaginable chaos and fear. The tension on that last night when the angel of death passed over Jewish homes with blood on the door, doorposts uh, would have been uh, unreal. And then in the dead of night, two million Jews and their belongings are hustled out of Egypt, hurrying to the Red Sea with the Egyptian army in hot pursuit. Did they leave Egypt only to be pinned and slaughtered by the side of the sea? Well, miraculously, God parted the sea and the Jews escaped to the other side with a drowning army behind them. But now what? Out of Egypt and into the desert, the Jews started dirt camping in the Sinai wilderness with Moses as their camp director. And soon they despaired of drinkable water and edible food. And overwhelmed by the challenge of life in the desert, the Jews forgot the amazing story that got them there in the first place. So God picked through their memories and selected one the Jews must always remember, the Passover. And this Passover celebration took place in the second year of their wilderness journey. After the tribes were organized and the tabernacle was planned, they needed to remember the mercies of the night of their deliverance. The Passover marked the foundation of their life as a nation through a specific gracious act of redemption. They needed to rehearse God's rescue in order to survive in the desert. And in the book of Numbers, God gave specific instructions on celebrating the event that defined them as a people. And so their table in the wilderness would be Passover. In Numbers 9, verse 1, it begins... The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of the Sinai. In the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt, he said, Have the Israelites celebrate the Passover at the appointed time. Celebrate it at the appointed time at twilight on the 14th day of this month in accordance with all its rules and regulations. And so Moses told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover, and they did so in the desert of Sinai at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. 
The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, within the instructions for the first Passover in the wilderness was a command to continue it. Exodus 12, 14. It says, this is a day you are to commemorate and for the generations to come. And you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is something that must be repeated. The Jews probably doubted whether they were to keep the Passover in the wilderness. They may have assumed it was something that they'd do when they got to the promised land. In fact, they likely expected to be taken directly to the promised land after leaving Egypt, uh, but they weren't, they weren't ready. Their life as God's people needed to be shaped and matured. They needed some wilderness experiences, some wilderness lessons first. Now, there are definitely shorter routes to get from Egypt to Palestine than through the wilderness of Sinai. Mount Sinai is about 200 miles out of the way, and there's scarcely any shade or water along the way. With God as your travel agent, one might expect a direct flight with no stops. He could have given the law in Kadesh Barnea or Hebron or by the Jordan, someplace a little more on the way. We need not wonder what God thinks about our questioning of the itinerary he has for our lives. And we often think that we know a better way. And God can be a very mysterious guide. We're never quite sure what he's going to be doing next. Um, He even led his own son into the wilderness for 40 days, which had nothing to do with getting him from point A to point B. And here lies the point. The wilderness is a place of preparation. Lessons learned there are essential for when we arrive at our destination. God directed his people on a 40-year detour into the Sinai wilderness because they weren't ready to receive the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses explains why, beginning with verse 11. He says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Now, as it turns out, the real testing ground isn't the wilderness, but it's the promised land. The wilderness is the boot camp. The land of milk and honey is where the battle for the heart is really finally fought. And there are more existential threats, apparently, in the nice houses, abundant flocks and herds, gold and silver, on that other side of the Jordan. And the wilderness is God's gracious inoculation against the infections of prosperity. The truth is, 
the journey would have been a lot shorter if the Jews were getting any of this. I mean, the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where the law was given, took three months. Then they stayed at Sinai for nearly two years, receiving the law of Moses, then planning and constructing the tabernacle for worship. Then they set out and arrived at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran on the cusp of the promised land, and 12 spies were sent out to spy the land out. And after 40 days, they return. Caleb and Joshua hand in this report. They say, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Numbers 13.30. But the other 10 spies oppose their decision. They say, we cannot attack those people. I mean, we were like grasshoppers in their midst. They are stronger than we are. And my guess is that Caleb and Joshua looked at each other in unbelief and then glanced at Moses and then looked back at the 10 spies and cried out, well, so what? I mean, what an amazing lack of faith from people who had walked out of Egypt through the Red Sea and spent two and a half years in the wilderness with God. So they needed more time. They needed more time in the wilderness to learn the lessons necessary to live in the land. And through Moses, God meted out judgment. This generation um, would not be able to enter the land except for Joshua and Caleb. They would be the only ones. In Numbers 14, 20, <clears throat> after Moses pleaded with God not to start over with new people, I mean, God threatened to just start with new folks. <laughs> Then the Lord replied, okay, I have forgiven them as you asked, but nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and just forgot about it um, and, and saw what I've done in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one has no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And that just left Joshua and Caleb. And the whole class flunked their final exam of Wilderness 101. They weren't allowed to graduate. And God spread tables in the wilderness for this stiff-necked stiff and rebellious people. But their memories were short, and they failed to remember God's rescues. People of faith must always be people of memory. A few years ago, I read a book titled Moonwalking with Einstein, which recounts Joshua Four's year-long quest to improve his memory by studying mental athletes, people who master memory techniques and compete in memory competitions. And the book includes an account of a person with the worst memory in the world, an 84-year-old retired lab technician whose memory extended back only as far as his most recent thought. Years before, a virus chewed through the medial temporal lobes of his brain, rendering him with no storage capacity. His brain sees but doesn't record. And he was left with uh, an anterograde amnesia, unable to form new memories, as well as retrograde amnesia, unable to recall previous experiences. He lived in the moment because it was quite literally the only interval that he could inhabit. Just don't ask him his wife's name or what he had for breakfast. An aging couple 
struggling to remember things, went to their doctor seeking help, who suggested they write things down. And at home one night, the, the wife asked her husband to prepare her a bowl of ice cream and whipped cream with whipped cream and told him to write it down. He said, well, goodness gracious, dear, I can remember that. And then she asked him to put crushed nuts on top, and, and so she told him to write it down. He said, goodness gracious, dear, I can remember that. Finally, she asked for a cherry on top and insisted that he write that down, to which he replied again, goodness gracious, dear, I can remember that. So he went into the kitchen and returned 30 minutes later with scrambled eggs and bacon. And the wife looked at the plate and then looked at him and just clearly disgusted uh, with her husband, finally said, well, okay, so where's my toast? (laughs) Now, those of us who swear that we have good memories, they're just really short, can relate to the Jews wandering in the wilderness. God was caring for them in every way, which they enjoyed in the moment, but struggled with anterograde amnesia. They failed to form new memories, which led to retrograde amnesia. They couldn't remember God's rescues. And eventually Moses began writing things down, but through those first critical years in the wilderness, they had to depend on their memory, which failed them. And it wasn't that they couldn't remember anything in the past. They seemed to have total recall of negative experiences. They remembered not having water, uh, but not the water flowing from the rock. They remembered not having meat to eat, but not the manna God provided. They remembered the comforts of Egypt, but not the abuse they suffered there. The Jews would never make it to the promised land if they couldn't remember who was leading them. And they needed something tangible they could taste and touch to remind them of God's awesome presence with them. And so God told them to celebrate Passover. Now, the second Passover would be different from the first. Now, they were a a Bedouin people living in tents. There were no doorposts to splash with lamb's blood. It's likely they purchased lambs from desert tribes. Remember, the Egyptians gave the Israelites their wealth as they left the land, and so they had funds. Unlike the first Passover, this meal would not be eaten in haste. And after cleansing their tent of any leaven used in bread making, leaven was a symbol for sin, the Jews prepared unleavened bread, a, a reminder of their hasty escape. A bowl of salt water would remind them of the tears in Egypt and now also passing through the Red Sea. The bitter herbs, horseradish, chicory, endive, lettuce, and whorehound were there to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Haroseth, a paste made from apples, dates, pomegranates, and nuts reminded them of the, of the clay from which they made bricks for Pharaoh. Sticks of cinnamon reminded them of the straw used in brick making. Four cups of wine would be drunk, one at a time, at strategic moments during the meal. Every detail spoke of deliverance, liberation from bondage. This was their deliverance meal. This was a celebration of freedom. And God used the Passover celebration to change their reference point. Since faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, as Hebrews says, we need to change 
our point of reference as well. We naturally strain our focus forward, anticipating what God uh, will do, searching for signs that point to his will. And although we can't see the substance of faith in the future, we can see the substance of faith in the past. And this is why God's people are called to recall the pattern of God's faithfulness, his power displayed, his presence experienced, his promises kept. We call these spiritual markers, marks on the trail of a journey with God. It's counterintuitive, but the safest way to move forward is while looking back. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, we need to remember past rescues, the importance of, that God places on commemorating his work is further seen in his response to a question posed to Moses about celebrating Passover. Some asked whether they could celebrate if they touched the dead body and were ceremonially unclean. And God responded that anyone ceremonially unclean or on a journey or an alien in their midst could celebrate Passover and would become outsiders if they didn't. And the implication is that everyone must rehearse, must rehearse God's rescues from God's rescue from Egypt. Everybody. And those who can but don't uh, will be cut off from God's presence in the wilderness. Forgetting deliverance is a way of forgetting the God who delivered them. And so the first table in the wilderness for the Jews was the celebration of Passover. And the first table in our wilderness is the celebration of Christ as our Savior. The Jewish Passover prefigured the role that Christ would play in our salvation, and our identity is based on a specific, gracious act of redemption. The Lamb slain foreshadowed the Lamb of God slain in our place. The stripes on the matzah represent Christ's scourging, the stripes on his back, his body offered on our behalf. The wine the Jews drank pointed to his blood shed for us. In John 1.29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then finally, John 6, 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Of course, this isn't meant literally, but he's referring, he's referring to celebrating communion as a regular way of recognizing his shed blood and broken body on our behalf. Now, while the Jews found deliverance in the desert in their celebration of Passover, we find deliverance in our desert in our celebration of Christ in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is essential because, like the Passover, it's a lesson on grace. It symbolizes how those not a people become the people of God. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our foundation and hope. And like the Passover, everyone is mandated to celebrate it. Like Passover, observance of the Lord's Supper, supper it must be very carefully done. In 1 Corinthians 
11.27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. We must approach the Lord's table with a proper attitude, which is why we should quietly reflect before partaking of the elements. There should always be that moment where we search our hearts and we find any hurtful way within us and confess that to the Lord and then receive his forgiveness again. And if we make light of the elements in some way, well, then we're in danger of being cut off in our relationship to the Lord. Making light of it either by just failing to celebrate it or, um, as some have done, poking fun at, at, at the meaning of the meal. And no person can habitually withdraw from the Lord's Supper without sin and loss. No matter the age, the people of God are people of memory. We need to remember. Hope for our future is rooted in our past. And if we forget past rescues, we'll doubt God's ability for future ones. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past, it gives us hope to trust in his faithfulness in the present. Now, finally, God's rescues fall into three categories. <clears throat> These are the categories to find those markers, those spiritual markers, and to store away the memory of rescues um, for the future. And those categories are deliverance, provision, and presence. God delivered the Jews from bondage in Egypt. Through Christ, God delivers us from the bondage of sin. God provided for the Jews. He provided for the Jews in the wilderness through Christ. God provides whatever we need from the abundant riches found in Jesus Christ. And God's presence was seen in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through Christ. God will never leave us nor forsake us. So what are your personal stories of deliverance? How has God miraculously provided for your needs? When have you felt the presence of God in your life? And it's time to make some memories. It's time to put down some markers. The COVID-19 pandemic, as weird and unsettling as it's been, is rife with experiences of God's deliverance, provision, and presence. Are you seeing and celebrating it?